theme for the evening talk is love. We are probably all very much aware of the amount of reference that there is to love in the culture in which we live. And that reflecting itself in all expressions of uh, popular culture, in music, in various uh, soap operas, in uh, literature, in cinema. Again and again we keep finding ourselves meeting with the importance of love. And it has an impact upon us. We find ourselves possibly interested in the uh, uh, loved lives of the rich and shameless and the various uh, gossip columns that go uh, along with that. And just uh, yesterday I was uh, uh, speaking to uh, one of the other teachers of uh, Gaia House, Stephen, Stephen Batchelor, and he recommended uh, a book that uh, I should read and he asked me if I, I had read it. I said I neither read it nor heard of it and the book apparently is called uh, the, the Romantics and before you jump to any conclusions and it's based, um, it's written by an Indian novelist, I believe his name is uh, Mishra and it explores, as I understood from uh, Stephen, um, something of the quest of uh, spirituality and being in India and two cultures uh, meeting together in that uh, form. And he says, it's not your, Stephen said to me, it's not your um, um, uh, airline bookshop kind of book, it's actually uh, a work of uh, genuine uh, literature. And he said, you should, be, you should read, it, read it. And then he added, um, there seems to be a reference to your retreats in it, <laughs> indirectly. So, nothing like the interest of the self to take a bit more interest in a book. <laughs> so, perhaps I'll be contacting Amazon.com. <laughs> anyway, we shall see. So, again, just with the title of things, wide variety of impact and influence are on uh, the importance of love. Religion too, for the most part, uh, also seems to give a great deal of emphasis to love. Here and familiar with the uh, statement, God is love. So here's this exposure that we uh, uh, receive. Then there is what goes along with it, of course, and that is and the significance and the place of our heart in relationship to events of life. The difficulty, and it's a very, very common difficulty, and one which one hears again and again, is that due to the culture that we live in and the enormous uh, emphasis on, on it, of it, sometimes when we think of love, we think very, very exclusively in a very narrow form or in a, rather in a particular expression of it. 
and that expression of it is often through the form of relationship interpersonal relationship and therefore because of the romantic connotation of love that has an impact on us of any age through that uh, impact there is a great deal of measurement of self measurement of self-worth in and through and via that kind of love and it plays havoc, it plays great difficulty with people's lives and and therefore in the shrinking down in the concept of love and the interpretation of it getting small and narrowly uh, defined people define their value, their worth, who they are by the relationship to that expression of love for some it will be along the lines of I am not in a relationship I obviously hear this regularly from people I am not in a relationship I want to be in a relationship it doesn't seem to uh, happen I don't know why it uh, uh, doesn't happen therefore and then the conclusion starts the self arises there must be something wrong with me therefore the interest in love is there the view of it is for it to manifest and express itself in a particular way through uh, interpersonal uh, intimacy and when that isn't happening the measuring comes the soul starts judging itself similarly and correspondingly uh, one has been in a uh, relationship that for all the reasons known and unknown that uh, relationships uh, end then uh, it is over that form, remember it's a form of love uh, ends at that particular time and how quickly and how easily and sometimes ferociously the mind comes in with the hurt, the sorrow, the grief, the, the despair along with all the views about oneself for why the relationship ended the self-blame that can come the blame towards the others the feelings of being abandoned the sense that one may never be in another relationship ever again all the pain which is weaving in and out of the experience of love in a particular form through its loss or through not having access to it sometimes we are hardly aware of the degree that our mind is socially conditioned the degree that our mind is fixed uh, and set and the way that the self views itself from the standpoint, from the measurement of love in one particular form so if we're going to speak of uh, opening up the heart opening up uh, the mind and having access to love one of the first things for those who are familiar with what I just said will be to really check in with oneself and look at oneself 
and is one carrying either memories from the past in terms of that form or hopes or wishes or uh, daydreams or fantasies or demands with regard to the future in trying to secure one form of love again when that happens life can get lonely when that happens life can feel very uh, uh, isolated simply out of that attachment to that particular uh, form obviously but how easily this is forgotten obviously there are varieties of ways of and opportunities for love to develop to generate to um, manifest and keeping the heart and mind wide open is to be very very clear about it so that one isn't dependent on looking for it in a particular way obviously one can be between the, the forms of uh, intimacy but it's not only uh, that form uh, as well so recently I had a meeting with uh, a woman uh, a mother of uh, uh, children of uh, three uh, adult children all aged around in their thirties uh, and very difficult conflict arose in the family and basically the, uh, without going too much into the detail the, the, the essence of the conflict was that two of the children went to live overseas one stayed in the country and gave uh, and helped in the father's uh, business and the parents had said that as they were uh, in, their, in their will and they told the three uh, children that when they died the property and the business and everything would be divided equally up between the three children the son who hadn't gone overseas and who had worked in the father's business through the ups and downs of it the verge of bankruptcy to the business getting better and all the shifts and changes said he, he felt it was incredibly unfair because he had put in all the work he had stayed at home he had helped to run the business and the others had gone to, to uh, live in another country the outcome of this was it created enormous conflict and still love uh, within that family it's not an unusual uh, story the love between the members of the family got less and less the conflict extended itself to other relatives to grandparents all got involved in this and the outcome of this mess and di difficulty was that the son who stayed at uh, home has now refused to have any contact with his parents pulled out of the business and doesn't let his children see the grandparents he says he feels so strongly that he stayed at home therefore why should the property and the business divided three ways when he's put so many years of his own 
uh, since university, his time into it. So out of the movement of uh, uh, wanting, out of the desire that uh, uh, takes place, it's at the expense and the cost of, of the love, and uh, with it the conflict that arises. No one able to shift the position and one sees, therefore, at times the form of desire, not the form of the wanting, eating up the love. So sometimes, in the areas of difficulty we're there, one might say it's not perhaps the love itself which is the problem, but the kind of association, as in the first example I gave of relationship, the kind of association that we have around it is our view of love too narrow, too defined, too limited in the interpersonal form or is it that, that sometimes love begins to take a second place in what we want in this, this story I gave of the family the demands that uh, enter into the, into the mind can get so strong with us it's at the expense of the love and therefore conflict, ari- conflict arising sometimes people who appear to be better off who appear to be rather rich and rather uh, affluent uh, and all that kind of hierarchy of social privilege and social needs and social wealth, uh, etc. As some of you will know as well as I, one only has to scratch the surface a little deeper and what may be going on behind closed doors may be quite a different story and therefore some conflict and confusion and pain arising out of not understanding the nature of love and desire and demand and wanting taking priority and it happens again and again and again and again so it's no easy task to look back to the heart to question and ask ourselves what expresses love and equally important what actually obscures it what actually makes it difficult for love to be set free so to speak to allow it to flow more easily like anything in life which is deep and authentic and important in existence and love certainly is it has the opportunity to move much more easily and freely in life simply when there isn't the obstructions against it and sometimes we are not a good friend to ourselves nor a good friend to others because we keep finding ways and means to justify the obstruction of love somebody says something to us maybe in the short period maybe in the long period that person may become very uh, difficult or hostile or whatever 
it, it may be. How very easily we, of course, internalize it. When we see that person again, or they telephone us, or they write to us, or whatever, something seems to contract with the heart. There is an impression born from the memory. There is a contact born from the memory, which generates the unpleasant feeling, and in that, we freeze up. And we, well, know there are probably people in one's life that when you see or hear or even just know their name and the thought about them arises or some association and immediately there's a contraction. The very thought of the person so something goes on with us which seems to impact inwardly, brings about some contraction or holding, and just the word, in this case the name, can have the potency to close off the heart. And teachings and practices for all the difficulties that go along with that is to find ways to stop that happening. To stop it happening. To stop the mind which easily and all too often has the tendency to freeze people out of our life. And we've got a hundred and one good reasons why we should do it. Yet it never feels quite right. But there's hopefully just enough intuition and sensibility and sensitivity within us that this doing this isn't right. And perhaps with that, when we are freezing someone out and therefore love is blocking, in that way, somehow there, there, there can be a feeling, if I change my attitude, then in some way or other I'm giving in. In some way or other I'm letting the other person triumph, or have their victory over me, or let they've got their own way. But in fact, it, it, surely it would be the other way round. When people attack us and uh, condemn us and criticize us or whatever it might be, and then we react, actually they've got us. There's a grip from the memory or from the contact over ourselves. And then when we respond in like, therefore the love, the love is gone, when we respond in like, we actually have sunk to that person's level. Both have good reason. Both, are, both parties concerned can be completely convinced. Both are incredibly argumentative. Not much love flowing. And both are trapped. 
So, the area of love, yes, it matters a great deal to us, yes, it matters for other people, and yes, of course, it's extraordinarily difficult to keep the heart extraordinarily steady in the face of what we don't like to see, hear, or know about. It's extraordinarily difficult to stay very steady with information that comes to us which is problematic. That's why we, as much as we engage in mindfulness here, we also engage in heartfulness. Sometimes we hear you know, stories, wonderful stories of human love uh, and its beauty and in its uh, innocence and in, and in its wonder and the way that uh, people in various circumstances out of an, their love engage in uh, demonstrations of, of love and uh, service and support for uh, others. And sometimes we get a, a reminder uh, of this, just flashing back to my past and past, and sometimes just a collection comes. I had one today uh, when people are engaged in the, the walking meditation. And I remember 20, 25, my God, 30 years ago, 25 to 30 years ago. <laughs> Uh, when I was a monk and I was in the area of Nakhon Si Tamarat. Uh, Nakhon Si Tamarat. Nakhon means city. Si is three. Mm. Uh, Tama means Dharma. Rat is the Thai word for Raj. So it's the city of the kings of Dharma. And this is where I did my uh, Vipassana uh, training in the Theravada tradition why it was ever called the city of the kings of Dharma, I'm not, I'm not, sure, not sure, because it, the whole province, which has had the same name, had the most violence of all provinces in Thailand, and there was a tremendous amount of terrorism uh, there. And time to time, I uh, would go to the local hospital with a doctor named Dr. Suntong, and part of the uh, training that we had as monks was to, uh, what doctors and nurses witness all too regularly, of course, is what can happen to the human body in various uh, circumstances. So the uh, abbot at Yandamadara would send me off with uh, the doctor, who was also a surgeon, to go to the hospital and just to watch and to witnessing witness what was going on in the hospital and in, and in, and in the, in the uh, operating theatre, etc. And I remember being down there on uh, one occasion and there had been uh, acts of various acts of terrorism and two of the people that they brought in, one was a man, an alleged terrorist, and he had uh, four bullet holes uh, in, in his back and from rifles and I've never seen very close up that before just the sheer size of the holes in his, in his uh, uh, back and the other was uh, a woman who 
had stood on a land mine, an anti-personnel mine, just an hour before and I brought her into the hospital and uh, one foot was blown away and uh, the other foot was just hanging on uh, there and of course many wounds in other parts of the body and a fairly awful sight to, uh, to, to see and I was invited to this, uh, into the operating theatre and just literally watched them cut the leg off and what reminded me of this was, uh, of all of this was the people and it's still taking place because of a huge number of anti-personnel mines in this case in Cambodia one area of that country millions of them of those who I would say out of love they would say just doing their job who actually have this incredible task of clearing areas of anti-personnel mines of that situation where sometimes to to cover an area of two or three uh, meters it can take two or three hours of painstaking care to uh, clear an area so that mostly village people can walk safely and, and, and freely and sometimes just our taking the walking meditation just one single step at a, uh, at, at a time with all the security and comfort and safety that's uh, uh, offered can just remind us where, where for others out of love out of a, out of awareness and out of a, a, a training that's taken place to actually do, do that to clear landmines and just how mindful that person has to be and how conscious uh, each single step each centimetre um, must be and sometimes in our own life of walking here and there we do take so much for granted and we do forget these quite remarkable demonstrations and expressions of love uh, that, that take, take place and sometimes contact with those situations association with them, listening about them and finding out about them genuinely can help touch through insight and through inspiration deep places in our own life so that we begin to open out most importantly the kind of forms of love which are available and it's a terrible pity if we just keep thinking of what I would like for love for me what I, w what I need and therefore restrict what is, uh, has incredible potential that means the manifestation, the cultivation, the generating of love in a much wider form than what we sometimes think for that it's almost a, a movement against popular culture which doesn't see in those terms, doesn't think in those, in those uh, terms and, and, and therefore we what, what we get is the culture that we get it can be through uh, emphasis um, and, and understandably so in a way uh, sense in the feeling that sometimes love is at the centre and we place it <coughs> in a particular way in a rather special kind of category uh, for ourselves and what I mean by that is that situations where feelings and thoughts 
do constantly dwell on matters of love. And we can be thinking of friends and loved ones and, and uh, uh, family. And sometimes it shifts itself outside of the human sphere and it shifts, it, shifts itself in something which we quote-unquote love to do. Still love there, it's finding its form, it's demonstrating an expression, but love, and Dharma teachings try to remind us of this, isn't something infinite. It isn't ultimate. It isn't the absolute thing of, of, of life. It's a human response, that's hopefully deep and profound, to situations, but it's a response that comes and comes out of heart and out of awareness to situations. If that love doesn't have the support of understanding, something goes on in the love with its expression. We cannot rely on love alone. Sometimes a person starts off, and some of you may know this through your own experience, of something that you really love to do. And there's a lot of energy for it, and a lot of commitment, <clears throat> and a lot of time, and a lot of love is put into it. And for a period of time, what, no matter what it is, it can be genuinely experienced as feeling incredibly fulfilling. So then it generates more love, and there is the wish, therefore, to continue doing it. One really loves to do it, whatever it might be. It could be work, study, creativity, indoors, outdoors, with others, by, with oneself, whatever. If there isn't understanding there, and the love is there, and the energy is there, and then one starts just concentrated, concentrating on that form of love exclusively, what starts off, and maybe for a period of time, as feeling very fulfilling, gradually becomes extremely, what, unfulfilling. What starts off I really love to do, and one does it, does it, does it, does it ad nauseum, continues doing it, and eventually it begins to have a totally different feeling to it. If you don't believe me, go and buy a block of ice cream when you leave here. A big block. And eat the whole lot. And then look at yourself honestly and say, how was it when I started uh, eating this, was it Tom and Philip or somebody, Tom and Jerry, I don't know who these people are. Anyway, this lovely ice cream, how was it when I started it? And now, how is it, having got through half a dozen cornets, how do I feel about ice, ice cream at this, at this point one hour, one hour later? Something goes on with us that we can start off with credible feeling of love towards whatever it, it might be. See, if something isn't there in the way of wisdom, understanding something about it, 
that which was so fulfilling becomes incredibly unfulfilling. And we don't understand why. We might blame the object of whatever it was, the ice cream, whatever it might be. Or we say, oh, I'm burnt out, which basically is, an, is um, a, a nice, polite, socialized way of saying um, there's no more love left. Our, or my attitudes have changed, or whatever. But it seems unfortunate to begin with something and it feels lovely and beautiful and sweet and, and important and valuable and healthy and helpful, and it ends up completely the opposite. What on earth has gone wrong? What on earth has actually happened to that which starts off as love and ends up as burnout, ends up as stress, ends up as disillusionment, ends up as feeling completely unfulfilled. Something happens. And something happens, and it's often in the movement from love to loss of it, it's not very often that it happens very dramatically, occasionally. Often it's a much more slower process bit by bit, day by day, week by week, year by year, something is going unnoticed. Awareness and understanding is to keep linking in with ourselves to see what is it that's going unnoticed which becomes a form of threat to the love. in any of the forms that we can speak about, many different forms of it. One of the factors that contributes to it is definitely resentment. Of all the four, of the many factors, but the only one, which tend to eat up love is resentment. may be to another, it may be resentment in terms of having to do, resentment in feeling of, of uh, pressure on oneself or others or whatever. Where there is resentment going on, and it's kind of in the psyche, in the air, in the atmosphere, in the feeling, in the body, that resentment eats up love like a cancer can eat up the body. And sometimes we need to look and check in with ourselves with the deep and profound thing of life and what we connect to with affection, with love, with contact. Is there in all of that the virus called resentment? Sometimes one hears of other stories. Somebody sent me a rather lovely... Uh, uh, story on an, e on an email uh, the, 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 other, the other day. Emails seem to be like many other things, the kind of um, latest form of transmission of the good, the bad and the ugly. And 
nice if the email was enlightenment mail, but unfortunately I don't know about your email, but mine, not much of it is. And one rather uh, touching uh, story, uh, where a young, in the hospital, um, a young girl had a blood disorder, and and a rather rather serious one. and it meant that uh, she needed a blood transfusion and, and understood rightly that because of a, a rare blood type but her brother is a younger, young person her brother is much younger five or seven years of age the doctor said to him um, you know, sister, two or three years older uh, needs a blood transfusion and if you can give her give her your blood, then she, uh, she'll survive, and uh, she can begin begin to get 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 better. And the uh, little uh, uh, boy lost a bit of colour in his uh, cheek, and and said that said yes yes I'll 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 give my 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 blood to my my big sister. And so, on the hospital ward, the transfusion uh, uh, from the boy to his uh, sister uh, took place. And in a little while, the, the, the sister began to um, uh, look better and feel better. And then the little boy turned to the doctor and said rather sweetly and rather quietly, how much longer do I have left to live? Isn't that something? The little boy thought that in giving his blood to his sister to save her life, it would cost him his life. And that's what he understood when the doctor said, could we have a, could, would be willing to have a blood transfusion to save your sister's life? And he said yes, assuming and thinking that he would die out of it. And I think sometimes those, uh, it's a true story, that those kind of stories in life where of extraordinary love and extraordinary self-sacrifice and done in a very pure, in this case, little boy, I think five, six, seven years of age, actually the willingness to, to do that on behalf of his, uh, his sister. But those situations in our own life, we need to see, may not be anything as dramatic that for us of course but to see ways and means that we need to be able to forget ourselves to forget ourselves and and to have a a kind of perception and awareness in life which is much bigger than thinking of self sometimes with love and its outflow, even with lots of awareness and clarity and without that virus of resentment running anywhere in it and with real commitment to uh, what, we, what we do that the love also requires from us uh, an awareness which doesn't make too much of results in the great uh, 
Bhagavad Gita, the uh, Song of God, the great uh, text of the Hindu community, much loved text. And perhaps it's one of its most, I think there are 700 verses, 18 chapters in that particular text, but one of its most famous, the one that's often the most quoted out of 700 verses, is Krishna saying to Arjuna, do not be attached to results the one that sticks in people's minds again and again and the one that's so often referred to in the, amongst those verses to be to watch the way we attach to results and sometimes and plenty of times in life of course we embark on some activity which has love in the centre of it and we know it, we feel it uh, in the way that our life is uh, living and we have no idea at that time in the short term what the eventual fruit or outcome will be of the way we have committed our love to something and the results which come uh, uh, out of it the, the relationship to that will show to us how wise we are, how clear we are, how steady uh, we are but so much investment goes on having the result that we would like and sometimes, as one hears so many many times from people when the results come and they're unsatisfactory results the frequent reaction of the mind is what did I do wrong? And then the self, identified with the result, turns on itself, puts blame on itself, and therefore eats up the love that's inside. Through the blame, which is another form of what? Self-resentment. So the movement of love is starting, the end result is not as we would wish, it could be about anything of life. We then grasp onto that and we say, what did I do wrong? As though, as though one could have done anything different from what one did. <laughs> not possible. One did what one did, whatever it might be, and the outcome is what it is. And each time we keep going to the past and keep saying to ourselves I should have done it differently if I knew this one of the most boring of all mantras if I knew what I know now etc. These famous one-liners have no significance at all. What took place is what took place and the outcome is what took place. It could not possibly have been any different because that's the way it was. And to project that it could have been different is just engaging in something which is a fiction. It is as it is. And the outcome is as it is. When we, as I say, keep turning to the past with self-resentment, uh, uh, 
it eats up the love and we get more disheartened, more dispirited, more despair, more depressed and we're actually consuming the most beautiful element within us called love. That's the loss. That is the loss. Sometimes, <coughs> finally, we placing in looking into the uh, uh, area of uh, love and looking at the various expressions of forms of it, not defining ourselves and measuring ourselves by being narrowly identified with a particular form of it. Therefore, finding ways to explore ways to keep everything open and clear even even if one was living a very loving life not only in harmony with uh, loved ones harmony with uh, creatures with uh, the nature and with oneself and sometimes we meet people who we really genuinely feel as deeply loving people and it's a, always a delight and a sweet thing of life to meet and have contact obviously with such people but from the Dharma standpoint even if I was leading a truly loving life with deep kindness in it deep care and compassion manifesting as something of the norm without attachment to results and all the difficulties that can arise in the mind through uh, um, preoccupying oneself with results still there would be a very fundamental question and it essentially is from where or from what does this love spring? from what does this love come? and that itself is a contemplation it's a realization it's a discovery it's a sense it's a knowing well from what does this love come? sometimes in the metaphorical language of Mediterranean culture and of course from uh, Jesus using the language of father and son and son, that is love comes from the father metaphorical language what is meant by that? so though we give deep uh, interest into matters of the heart that they play such an important uh, place in our life but still, nevertheless, from what does all that come? child is the, is the son and the daughter of what? love is the son and the daughter of what? and what does it spring? and therefore, as I say again, contemplative life, meditative uh, life is to discover that, to realize that 
and the heart then can look after itself. May your beings live with awareness. May your beings live with love. May your beings live a free and liberated life. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together. for the evening talk is a the title for the evening talk is a dewdrop on a leaf. Uh, the inspiration for this is once a one line comment from the Buddha who said rather sweetly he compared life to being like a drop of dew on the tip of a leaf and sometimes perhaps in the uh, early hours of the fresh of the fresh day when the new day is arising on this earth we've seen the drops of dew and life is something of that order, reminding us of the uh, uh, wonder of it, the miracle of it, and the vulnerability of it, the uncertainty that go along with it. And I'd like just to attend and address to that a uh, little bit uh, this evening. In the Buddhist tradition with its long-standing effort and commitment to look into this whole thing of living for the convenience of communication it is often placed into two primary areas both of which are important deserve our attention and one shouldn't overshadow the other what I mean by that is uh, the relative world is one which you and I live in and the outcome of that or what shows that to us is our interest in ourself our interest in what we do what we put time, energy, love, commitment into the condition of the uh, inner life the matters around physical life health, sickness, uh, ageing our various uh, roles and activities, our connection and relationship to past, present and future. All of this is called relative truth, meaning it relates to ourself. Conventional truth, relative, same thing. And that so much of what you and I engage in, in day in and day out, is very much related to the conventions of life. And when we stop, and especially if we have some spirit left in us of questioning, we can see again and again just how much of our life is shaped and constructed and formed by the culture and the society in which we live. 
And out of that, for better or worse, probably both, we have made a world. And into our world that we've made, we put our priorities, roles, money, identification, relationships, etc. And all of this is put under the general category, relative truth, conventional truth, people's agreement, everyday life, everyday concerns. It would be rather a pity for us if we ploughed all of our attention, all of our life, into that world and made it the only world which is true. Or as those who are totally caught up and identified with it, call it, they call it, which is rather conceited, call it living in the real world. Well, oh, what a claim. Oh, the arrogance of human beings is really touching. So sometimes we get caught up in that. You come here on a day retreat. Some of your friends or your family, mother and father or whatever. And you yourself too. Bless you for it. They think that uh, you're escaping from the real world. Some will regard taking the uh, train down to Devon as some kind of flight from reality. Uh, what that says about Devonians, I'm not sure. Uh, so, all of these constructions about what is the reality, what is the true reality? And as I say, any area of questioning of life, any rare area of genuine interest, may have to question that. May have to question who I am, what I am, and what am I doing with my life, or, more directly, what the hell am I doing with my life, etc. And if you haven't come to the last one, then it's a pity. All of that takes a willingness. Sometimes, that willingness, this is still with the relative things of life, that willingness to question and to ask has a very noticeable and distinctive feature to it. It might bring you more questions than answers. And is one willing to do that? Some are not. They've made their mind up what the reality is and they've given it a social reality, political, economic, working reality, have given it a religious reality, a philosophical reality, or the word reality has never entered into questioning at all. Just got on with things for better or worse. So sometimes we bring awareness to our life and that awareness has as one of its outcomes some kind of questioning and that questioning may need for some to take forward what really is true, what's authentic. What is real? Who's got the measure of it? Who's got the criteria to it? Who is it that's telling me this is reality, this is truth, this is the real world? Who am I telling, whoever they are? No easy undertaking because, as I said, sometimes the questioning brings about 
such an upsurge in, in our inner life, we don't know what doors are going to open, we don't know where it's going to uh, lead, we don't know what changes it's going to bring about in our existence, if any, and if it's needed. Sometimes one's reality becomes terribly difficult. Terribly difficult. Terribly difficult. And especially, of course, when there's painful circumstances and very painful information and our inner life, humanly enough, gets completely absorbed in some painful situation. And sometimes that pain, that inner pain, mental pain, feeling, emotional pain, total inner pain, for some becomes to the point of being quite unbearable. And just recently, in, uh, to give an example of, the, of how difficult it can be, recently a friend uh, and I was uh, teaching uh, overseas told me that a uh, person, uh, friend of a friend, she was going through so much terrible pain in her uh, inner life, couldn't put up with it. And as these things uh, happened, uh, the consequences of it was that she threw herself out of her second uh, floor apartment. In one of those strange circumstances of, of existence that she struck when she fell the, one of those large, round clotheslines and fell right on top of it. And it completely broke the fall. And apart from some you know, bruises and cuts and shock, etc., etc., saved her. And she had an opportunity to actually pick up her life again and, and, and reevaluate and to see how sad these situations are in people's lives, of the intensity of pain, and what sometimes happens is that intensity of pain that's going on, it's as though the mind, in such circumstances, wants to shift off that pain and put it onto a physical pain, put it onto another pain, to get out of that terrible inner, inner pain. And because at times, the circumstances and the sadness of it, the pain is the supreme reality, an overwhelming and overbearing uh, one as it can be. So Dharma teachings and Dharma practices are a, a an effort and an attempt and an and a investigation and a meditation and a, a re- reflection on finding ways and means in our life to, as the Buddha himself said in 45 years of sustained teaching, he said, he says, I only teach two things. I'm only concerned with two things in life, nothing else. One is that there is suffering in this world. Secondly, it's resolution. Never said life is suffering. Such words never come out of the lips of the Buddha at all. That there is suffering in life and there is the resolution of it. It can be that in the impact of different forms of uh, suffering that uh, goes on in our life, mental, emotional, physical, or, or whatever, that the attending to all of that, and our life like the dewdrop on the end of the leaf, uh, the attending to all that can seem, and is in fact, a huge undertaking. 
to actually find ways, inwardly and outwardly, to find the wisdom, and sometimes finding the wisdom means finding the space, to actually be able to accommodate what is most difficult. Does one have the capacity to accommodate in the heat of the moment, in the reality of the moment, what is most difficult? And that willingness to explore that is an enormous undertaking. But it's possible. Without anything. When you come into a retreat, particularly first, uh, first day. And as I mentioned in one of the small groups today, the uh, mantra of the day is quite often pain, restlessness, tiredness and boredom. These four, on the first day of a retreat, are a kind of um, epidemic amongst the meditators and that with all the good intentions of uh, uh, being here all the demands of staying here for a week long period not for everybody but uh, a fair percentage of you 99.5 but a fair percentage of you think, look at the day and think what the hell has my day been like and often conveniently fall into pain, restlessness, boredom and doubt and uh, tiredness or whatever. Not altogether surprising, not altogether surprising, one will hardly compare it to the discos in Ibiza and in sitting in this kind of uh, situation when he's saying, can I be with this in such a way, those four kind of experiences, that the potency of that begins to lose its grip over consciousness? That's all. Can I just stay steady with it, see that this is what the formations of the day is like, recognize all the unsatisfactory views and opinions and judgments that go thick through the day towards oneself, towards others, etc. all belong not as any clear objective statement about anything but one of those opinions which comes out of pain, restlessness, boredom and apathy and tiredness and exhaustion all the opinions that come out of it are only confirmation of the state of mind. What would it be if we lived, looked at our life and we saw that what, much of what it manufactures towards ourselves or others or environments or situations is really the view quite often springing from the state of mind. What would it be to say let me make a lifelong practice of being not easy as clear as possible that the views that we have which we feel are somehow unsatisfactory or something odd about them or whatever 
says not too much about circumstances, it does say something about the state of mind, would we own up to it? Would we? Would we say views and states of mind sometimes go together like wood and trees? Which is of course a terrible insult to wooden trees. Apologies to the wooden trees. But it can be that close together. Could we allow ourselves to witness, see that? Yes. That's it. Yes. I see that going on with me. And somehow that seems to take a little bit pressure off the externalising of the view polite word for dumping our views and opinions on others and a little bit more hey, where is it coming from? not what it's about you know, so human beings, if we did that regularly we, we wouldn't know this world it would put an end to wars straight away Instead of saying my view about them or that is actually coming from a certain state of mind, a certain habit, a certain conditioned attitude, a certain uh, uh, way that I am feeling and experiencing right now and this is what's going on, I'm just saying yes, that view is related to that. This world would be a completely different place to live in. There's going to be no need for wars and conflicts and, and all the aggro that goes along with it just because we happen to bring in one simple awareness not necessarily curing the issue not necessarily curing the problem but just simply taking more interest where it's coming from than what it's about I was in, um, during the, uh, where the hell was I? <laughs> anyway, I was somewhere else. And um, li- literally, not metaphorically, not spaced out, though it might have been. And I know, it was New Zealand a few months ago. And Jeremy, who uh, was uh, teaching uh, uh, with me, he, sometimes somebody tells us something, can you? Really, stri- the simple truth really strikes one. But he told me told me something. I remember I made reference to it in a retreat here in the summer or somewhere else. He works with men who are uh, violent, domestic violence, terrible thing in our society. I was in India in January. They, did, they interviewed. 10,000 women in uh, homes in India. 25% of them reported physical violence in their homes towards them. 40% uh, reported uh, verbal violence, rage, anger, aggression, etc., etc. And of course, I don't suppose the figures are much different anywhere else. So Jeremy worked with domestic violence bringing men who have been sent by the court. I think that's a, in all of this important thing for uh, all uh, women and men here. And said, 
when the men get together on the their sort of counselling, which he, the work that he does, and they sit on the, in a circle on the chairs. Apart from the introductions, etc., etc., he will ask, "Why do you do that? Why did you hit her? Why did you punch her in the face? Why did you beat her up?" And he said, "It's not unusual." that the reply that he gets is she deserved it. Not unusual. He walked down the street with one of the men and the man, who was again under a court order for domestic violence, tried to kick a, a dog that was going past. And he said to him, why, why, do you, why did you try and kick the dog? He said, I thought it was going to get in my way. And the outcome of all of this, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a minority, etc. But the outcome of all of this is that there was no ability initially to be able to bring awareness, to look back at what was going on inside that generated the violence outside. It's her fault. She made me mad. And all the tragic one-liners that are used in these kind of circumstances. And it's when a person is coming into some awareness of life, it is an awareness which is not only able to see the external factors, but equally important, maybe more important, to be able to acknowledge inside what, when it's coming from within. What's coming from within. And sometimes, once a person whatever the circumstance, in which there is the ability to acknowledge something is going on within, which, mani- which runs through, manifests, in various ways that it does. That's the beginning of real inner awareness. We can see from within and how it manifests outwardly, and once that awareness is there, then some work, inner work can begin. Without it, we'll put all the blame of this world upon the external. Not to say that we, whoever we are, is responsible for everything, etc., etc. Not to go to the extremes in all of that, but at least to have enough leeway and flexibility with awarenesses in life to see the inner to the outer and the outer to the inner and to get to understand and know that. And sometimes what those who work in this case, domestic violence and work with those situations, realise and begin to see, as some of the men begin to see, that somewhere in their long, tragic personal history, there's a great deal of uh, frozen emotions. And therefore, a loss of natural human empathy and feeling for another human being. A frozen emotional life. So our inner work, and taking that of course as uh, one extreme example, is that capacity within ourselves to stop, to be present, and to see what's unfolding through the presence of, of, of things, and hopefully much of what's unfolding genuinely is, is well and ordinary and not 
um, preoccupied with greed and negativity and fears and delusions and uh, uh, projections, etc. And what flows, just normal inner life flowing along in its uh, uh, own own way. And yet, for all of us, take that little extra awareness when the greed and the aggressions and the negativities and the fears there and see ways to work with it. And we not only provide a genuine service for ourselves with regard to that, but also with re- for others as well. In bringing this uh, sense of, of life in terms of the uh, rel- relative uh, again, and, and being in this uh, kind of environment, some of you, some of you have lots of experience in all of this. It's bringing a mindfulness and a consciousness to, to as many ordinary things through the day as much as possible. But sometimes, we have to look to see for ourselves and, and all of this, it takes a little honesty with ourselves. And it's just a kind of rough, rough guide and you'll have to reflect for yourselves with regard to this. Sometimes, when one area of life in its reality for us, how we make it our central reality, has built up and has got bigger and bigger in its reality, whatever that may be about, we may have to ask ourselves, is that some kind of uh, reflection or intimation of neglect elsewhere. About anything. So during the course of today, in your sitting, walking, standing meditation, you may possibly have noticed that the inner life is going on and on about something. It feels to be very real, understandably very human, of course, very substantial, very significant, and it's pressure is with it. It's painful and difficult, and one may not be able to see a way through it or an end to it. In all the ways, manifestations of that in human experience. And it's sometimes it's not only attending to that, it is important, but to, possibly when there's a little bit more space, to actually ask ourselves, am I in fact neglecting some other areas of life which really need nourishing and attending to and bringing out? And that therefore preoccupation, sometimes obsession, sometimes sheer force of habit, keeps driving this in a direction which isn't very good for us. And as I say, to repeat a little bit, there may be, probably is in fact, some neglect of other things in life which are very nourishing and we are simply neglecting them. Hence, painful consequences. Hence, painful realities. 
is that going on in our life? So in the context of a meditative environment, context of uh, a retreat situation, in the field of the uh, relative, we take a sustained interest in the present moment, in working to keep as steady as possible, and also that recognition and acknowledgement as as well of what might be going on with our life, which may not be directly related to anything here, but certainly requires from us more insight and more understanding. We give our attention to the here and now, and we may recognize that in our personal life there may be areas or an area which really require from us more insight. And someone will say, more insight? That would be lovely, Christopher. I've got no insight into what's going on. All right. Some may require insight, don't no, mind the more, insight into the certain situation, understanding which isn't there at the present, and both, that is insight, which is more sharp and immediate, understanding, which communicates a more general sense about things, the significance, and it's the most profound of significances for human beings, the significance of insight and understanding is when it is there, it makes a difference to any problem that human beings have. If you, there is insight, if there is understanding, sometimes verbal, sometimes non-verbal, intuitive sense, the insight and the understanding makes a difference. If it isn't making any difference, it ain't no insight and it ain't no understanding, it's just some ideas about in the name of insight into it, in the name of understanding. It makes a difference, it lowers the temperature of the pain, the frustration, the anguish, the fears, the worries, etc. So some uh, teachings, some of you may be listening tonight and think, my God, this is a damn grim message for all the Buddhists and their suffering etc, etc. It's not only that. <laughs> there are some talks to come after this evening. <laughs> Leela will give one tomorrow <laughs> And But still to attend to those immediacy of things which I'm uh, uh, referring to uh, th- uh, there. So that we really can use the resources of the situation to really help understand. That might mean at times asking ourselves, actually asking ourselves, not just listening to Christopher ramble on, actually asking ourselves in a situation which is one's dealing with, and some of you in a small group referred to things today, what is it that I need to be very clear about? What is it in this, whatever it might be, that I genuinely need to understand. 
And if we can apply some kind of guideline or principle uh, to that, we might be pleasantly surprised that we are we are Homo sapiens after all and not Homo ignoramus. That in fact there may be to one's surprise, I know, but there may be a lot of wisdom inside of one, which just takes a little digging, a little questioning, and a little uncovering. What is it I need to be cleared about? What is it I really need to understand and to really quietly listen inwardly? I spent enough time in life listening to the listening to rock outwardly. What about listening to a little bit of the rocking of the mind that's going on inwardly and think, what do I need to be clear about in all of this? And if we're quietly patient, sometimes in a sudden shift or in a gradual way, things can come quite clear. Whatever it's about. In this looking and attention into one's uh, uh, life, as I mentioned uh, um, earlier, with the um, title of the uh, dewdrop on the end of the leaf, I haven't quite fathomed out how that actually fits in with the title of the talk, but maybe I'll get to it. (laughs) Sometimes one senses in this field of uh, life, and it may be for a number of you just uh, sitting here today. At the present time, and feel blessed, there may not be much of relevance to issues and working with issues of the inner life. One may be able to put one's hand on one's heart, as some can in the hall here, and say, right now, today, things are fine, things are well, things are... uh, uh, okay, I don't feel unhappy, I don't feel what was that list I gave? Bored, tired, restlessness, pain, blah, blah, blah. I'm not feeling uh, anything. Glad to be here, glad to be between sky and earth, and some recognition that one's life is a dewdrop on the end of the leaf. Elsewhere the Buddha, I have to say, because that's a rather a sweet poetic description. He once also said elsewhere, he says, life is like um, a lump of spittle on the end of the tongue. This is a more Buddhist view of things, I would say. (laughs) In other words, sometimes the pleasantness of life has its poetic beauty, and there's the rough edge of life as well, and that also has to be acknowledged and uh, included. And in, in that, in terms of one area of life is the relative, I've just been speaking to it half an hour or so. The other is that sometimes we're not concerned with one's life and the issues and the problems and the resolution and the insight and the understanding of our life of ourself. It's not the issue that's going on. It's not a, a preoccupation uh, with us. Those times are to be acknowledged, are to be respected. When it's not like that, how are things? How's the sense of things? When we're not in the grip of me and my personal existence, 
and how things were for me and how things are for me and how things might be or will be for me. When we're not in that grip of preoccupation, that relative world, as the Buddhists will say. And therefore, in not being in that grip, what's the sense of things? Are we then the dewdrops hanging on the end of a leaf? Or is the leaf and the dewdrop embraced? The teachings and practices endeavour, not always so easy, to be honest and straightforward with the issues of life that need attending to and working with and meditating on and questioning and getting some discovery about. That's got to be there and yet not making that some kind of endless end in itself of always working on ourselves, as some people seem to do, to actually have a sense of what's not relative to us. To realise and discover some sense of something which is ultimately steady. Some sense which embraces or includes the dewdrop and the leaf different sense of things beyond the self. And our meditations and our day and our practices are hopefully taking a real keen interest in this for one primary reason. This is life. This is it. This is it. And if we're willing to take the challenge of that, because it's our life, the life of others, and investigate and look, uh, look uh, in, into, into all of that, there's a genuine sense and feeling and freedom in life. We're really meeting existence. It's a beautiful thing to do. And perhaps in that respect, there's no alternative. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings see into this extraordinary field of living. May all beings live with great discovery. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.